Well, last week, our campus pastors called us to a new beginning. They took us to Isaiah 43 and reminded us that God is all about new things. They challenged us to open our minds and hearts to the new things God might want to do in our lives and our church. Now, I don't know about you, but I was inspired. First, I got to do the podcast with Pastor John for the online service, and that got me all pumped up. Then on Sunday morning, I sat in the front row in Lexington, amening out loud as Pastor Rachel preached, and I found myself getting more excited about the new things God might want to do in the year to come. As we bowed in prayer after the message, it suddenly occurred to me that this time next year, I would literally be doing a new thing, no longer leading Grace Chapel. But I didn't know what that new thing was yet. And that thought was both intriguing and uncomfortable. <laughs> but that's how it is with new things, isn't it? They're, they're a mixed bag. Uh, when the pastors asked us to think back on a new beginning in our lives, I thought about my freshman year of college. On the one hand, I was really excited about it. I, I deliberately chose a school that none of my friends were going to, a thousand miles from home, just outside Chicago. I, I wanted to start fresh to be whoever I wanted to be in this new environment. I remember watching my dad drive away and realizing I was on my own and, and was feeling pretty good about that. Those first couple of weeks, I, I met kids from all over the country, enjoyed all the fun and games of orientation week and set up my room the way I wanted and dove into my classes. But pretty quickly, I ran into all the challenges and frustrations that every freshman encounters. Back home, I was a big fish in a relatively small pond. A good student, a decent athlete, a leader in my youth group. And suddenly, I was surrounded by valedictorians and all-state athletes and class presidents. I was on the fourth floor in the freshman dorm, and it seemed like all the cool kids were on the fifth floor. And the Midwest was weird. They wore tennis shoes, drank pop, and ate their pizza with a fork instead of folding it over like we did back home. I missed home. I missed my friends. I wondered if I'd made a mistake. Maybe I should transfer to Gordon, where all my friends were. But that's how it is with new things, isn't it? On the one hand, they're full of possibilities and promise. At the same time, they always come with challenges and uncertainties. So how do we prepare ourselves for new things? How do we navigate new beginnings? How can we get this new year off to a good start? And for those of us who are people of faith, what can we expect from God when it comes to new beginnings? And what does God expect from us? Now, those are some of the questions we'll be going after in this fall series and throughout the year. And we came up with this theme last spring in my kitchen, actually. Our teaching team took a half a day out of the office to think and pray about our teaching journey for the year. We took inventory of what was happening at church and, and in the wider world. We sensed that people were still figuring out life on the other side of the pandemic, still adjusting to all the changes that it brought to our work and our relationships, our schedules, and our church. Things still felt different, unknown. There were new people, new ministries, new challenges and opportunities. We sensed that God was up to something, but we weren't sure what. 
So we decided to lean into that. And some, when someone suggested the theme, New Beginnings, we all jumped on it. What they didn't know was that in a few weeks, I was going to announce my transition from the senior pastor role. It was going to be a, a, a newer beginning than any of us ever imagined. So with all that in mind, we're going to spend some time this year looking at times and places in Scripture when God was doing a new thing. And we're going to begin with the biggest beginning of all, the beginning of the universe, as it unfolds in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, which, by the way, means beginnings. In the weeks to come, we'll talk about the beginning of humankind, the beginning of sin, death, and grace, the beginning of sexuality, friendship, and marriage, the beginning of mission, the beginning of faith, and the beginning of the gospel. Now, we'll be working out of the early chapters of Genesis, but each week we'll look to the New Testament as well to see what those new beginnings eventually led to. So today, let's look at the beginning of everything, as is described in Genesis 1, and see what we can learn about how and why God does new things. Uh, we'll spend some time in the text first, and, and then we'll talk about what all this means for our lives. So here we go, the opening verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, like any good writer, we have to believe that the author of this book, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chose his opening words very carefully. In the beginning. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to how far back Scripture is taking us here. Is it taking us back to the very beginning, before anything existed, before the, before the Big Bang, as we often refer to it? Or is it simply taking us back to the primordial universe, when all that existed was gases and energy and matter? Well, either way, it's telling us that there was a beginning that there was a time when the universe as we know it didn't exist, and a time when it began. Well, the next word introduces us to the subject of this book and the protagonist of the universe's story. In the beginning, God. The writer wants us to understand that everything began with God. And to be sure we get it, God will be mentioned 35 times in the 31 verses of this opening chapter. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, in the beginning, gods. That was a very important point for the ancient hearers of this story. Uh, there are lots of other creation stories from other ancient cultures and languages, and, and they bear some similarities to this one. Which shouldn't surprise us, we all live in the same universe. But in every other creation story of the time, there were gods, plural. Gods who were fighting with each other, or seducing each other, or taunting each other, and who were somehow responsible for Earth's origins. The Genesis account stands apart from these ancient myths in all kinds of ways, but most notably, with the idea that everything began with one God. 
And notice it, it also doesn't say in the beginning matter or in the beginning energy, as if something was already there, as if natural forces were responsible for everything that exists. The late great astronomer Carl Sagan was fond of saying, the cosmos is all there is or was or ever will be. Not so, according to Genesis. There was a time when the cosmos didn't exist, but God did. Before there was matter, there was being an all-powerful being who was and is behind it all. In the beginning, God created. And that, too, is a richly and carefully chosen word. It's the Hebrew word bara. It's used some 40 times in the Bible, but only in reference to God. Only God can bring something from nothing. Ex nihilo, as theologians like to say. And then there's that final phrase in the opening sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ancient people knew nothing of galaxies or quarks. So that phrase, heaven and earth, was their way of describing everything that exists. Now, verse 2 provides us with a bit more detail about that beginning. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, this verse seems to be describing a time after the Big Bang, or whatever it was that set things in motion. Stuff was there. Matter, energy, gases. But it was undifferentiated, non-functional. It just existed. Now, there's, there's nothing sinister about the language used here. It was just chaotic, empty of meaning and purpose and order and, and what we would call life. But God was there. God's Spirit was active, hovering above it all, like a mother bird circling above its nest. And then, at some point in time, things began to happen. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And so it goes, one so-called day after another for six days. Light, dark, land, sea, fish, fowl, animals, and ultimately, humans. Uh, we won't take time to read it all today, but, but most of us are familiar enough with it to know that creation unfolds with a sense of order, beauty, and diversity, and ever-increasing complexity. But, but we do have to be careful about how we read Genesis chapter 1. It's not Science. Science is all about empirical data and observable phenomena and hypotheses that can be tested. Well, no one was there at the beginning to measure and observe and hypothesize. 
Now, now, we can look back on the data and phenomena that still exist, and science does that and is able to help us understand a bit more about what happened and how it happened and, and maybe when it happened. But that's not Genesis' concern. You see, science is about how and when. Genesis is about who and why. <laughs> Genesis tells us virtually nothing about how or when. There are no timestamps in Genesis 1. There's no detail about how God separated the land from the sea. And science can't help us with who and why and doesn't try to. So can we put to rest once and for all this so-called conflict between faith and science? There is no conflict. Or maybe I should say there doesn't need to be a conflict. They're simply answering different questions. And most Bible scholars agree that, that the Genesis account allows for a variety of scientific explanations of what happened and when it happened and how it happened. Now, we don't have time to dig into all of this, but, but, but basically, people of faith hold to one of a few different views or theories about Earth's origins. Francis Collins, the highly regarded scientist and Christian, outlines these options in his book, The Language of God. Young Earth creationism is based on the idea of a very literal reading of Genesis 1 and proposes that God created the universe directly and miraculously in six 24-hour days and that the Earth is less than 12,000 years old. Young Earth creationists attribute the geological and fossil record to the effects of the flood and, and point out that, that God could certainly have created the earth with the appearance of age. Old earth creationism affirms that God created the universe by direct action, but understands the days more figuratively as epochs, long periods of times, as, as suggested by the fossil and geological record. They allow for natural forces to be at play, processes, but, but, but insist that God intervened supernaturally at critical points and superintended the process. Theistic evolution proposes that God created the universe through natural processes, working within the natural order and over a long period of time. It embraces science as a reliable way to understand the world while still affirming faith in a God who was and is active in the universe. Now, we should add the multiverse hypothesis, which has been gaining traction in recent years. It proposes that our universe is just one among an infinite number of universes. And some scientists offer this as a plausible and natural explanation for the so-called fine-tuning of our universe, precluding the need for an intelligent designer. But as, as John Lennox, the Oxford mathematician and Christian, points out, God could create as many universes as he pleases. The multiverse concept of itself does not and cannot rule God out. Well, my guess is that we have proponents of all of these views represented in our congregation. 
I'm also guessing there are scientists out there listening who are cringing right now at my simplistic explanation of all of this. Feel free to straighten me out after the message. I'm simply attempting to show that the Bible allows for a variety of understandings of origins and that science and faith don't have to be in conflict with each other. Now, we actually have a group of scientists here at Grace who get together on a regular basis to read and discuss matters of science and faith. You can find them at gc-science.org. So while science tries to answer the questions how and when, Genesis is concerned with who and why. Now, we've already established the answer to the who question when it comes to the beginning of everything. God, as we said, is mentioned 35 times in this opening chapter. We're told that God creates, God speaks, God sees, God separates, God calls, God makes, God forms, and God rests. Uh, we happened to be down in New York City last week and, and visited the Museum of Natural History with a few of our grandkids. Uh, they have a new exhibit there, a kind of immersive theater that tells the story of the Big Bang, narrated by the actor Liam Neeson. Now, knowing I was preaching on this, I couldn't resist, so I went through it twice, taking notes on my iPhone. Neeson's sonorous voice and the brilliant images took us back 13.7 billion years to a time when all matter and energy might have been contained in an infinitesimally small concentration, which suddenly and inexplicably exploded and expanded into what would become the universe as we know it. Now, as you can imagine, God was never mentioned in the seven-minute experience. But the narration included lines like these. Five billion years ago, something suddenly sped everything up. The origin of it is still a mystery. Hmm. I wonder what that something or someone might have been. It spoke about a force called dark energy that works opposite to gravity and caused the expansion of the universe. Hmm. If, if gravity pulls things downward and inward, the opposite of gravity would pull things upward and outward. <laughs> Sounds like what the Spirit of God does, right? This mysterious dark energy, the narrator told us, energizes the entire universe. Hmm. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul telling us that in Christ, all things hold together. You see what I'm getting at? Scientific theories and discoveries don't preclude the existence or activity of God. In fact, the more we learn about the universe, in my experience, the more convinced we are of the power and wisdom and goodness of God. But, but that leads us to the other question Genesis speaks to. Why? And, and, and that's the question I'd like to focus on here as we work towards what all this means for us. In fact, there are three why questions I'd like us to consider. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there somebody rather than nobody? And why is there someday rather than just 
today. Now, hang with me. I think it will all make sense when we're done here. The first question has to do with purpose. Why is there something rather than nothing? If we accept the idea that God is the who behind the universe, it begs the question, why? Why did he do it? Why did God make the heavens and the earth? Well, let's first be clear about why he didn't create it. God didn't create the universe because he was lonely. I remember well-meaning Sunday school teachers telling me that when I was a kid. And I imagine God sitting up in heaven with no one to play with. That's not it. Father, Son, and Spirit existed together from all eternity and enjoyed perfect community. Not to mention the existence of angels and all manner of celestial beings. God was not lonely. God didn't create the universe, heavens and earth, because he was bored and needed some entertainment, which is how many ancient creation stories put it. God didn't create the heavens and earth because he was vain and needed to be praised, or because he had so much to do he needed our help in taking care of planet earth. God created the heavens and earth, first of all, to reveal his glory to put his power and wisdom and goodness on display so it could be seen and appreciated. Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Jumping to the New Testament, Romans 1 tells us, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Glory is simply greatness on display. Last Sunday, uh, New England glorified Tom Brady. Uh, They put him up in the lighthouse at Gillette Stadium. They recounted his accomplishments. They showed highlights from his career. They told stories of his leadership and influence on the game. Now, I think everyone would agree Tom Brady was a great quarterback, even without that ceremony. But the ceremony put his greatness on display so it could be seen and enjoyed and appreciated. That's glory. And that's the purpose of creation, one of the purposes anyway, to reveal God's glory. The eternal God was wise and powerful and good long before the universe came to be. But the universe put that wisdom and power and goodness on display so it could be seen and appreciated and enjoyed. And so now we're beginning to get to the meaning of all this for our lives and our faith today. You see, when God does a new thing, it's always on purpose. There's wisdom behind it. There are reasons for it. God is up to something. So when you find yourself in a new beginning, a new job, a new school, a new relationship, a new home, a new church, a new season of life, understand that there's a purpose in it. Even if you didn't choose that new thing, even if it was the result of something unintended, or unfortunate, or even evil. God wants to meet you in that new thing and do something good with it 
something wise and beautiful and good for you and for the world around you, something that will reveal his glory. With God, new beginnings are always purposeful. Which leads us to the second why question. Why is there somebody rather than nobody? Science has been able to answer a lot of questions about the universe and about humankind, but it's never really been able to explain life as we know it, and human life in particular. Why and when and how did the species known as Homo sapiens come to be human, to be able to think and speak and create and love and laugh and cry and play and plan and worship? God could have stopped at day six. His glory would still have been on display in the skies and seas and the rocks and trees and in the beasts of the field. The angels and celestial beings would still have marveled and rejoiced at the wonders of the worlds God had made. But he didn't stop there, did he? Verse 26 tells us, And God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we'll talk more about these verses next week. But for now, enough to point out that God didn't just want to reveal his glory. He wanted to share his glory. He wanted to impart something of his nature and capacity to beings like you and me, beings with whom he could have a relationship, beings with whom he could share the the work of creating and cultivating and caring for the world he had made. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul tells the Athenians, from one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Remember Liam Neeson describing a mysterious voice that energizes everything in the universe? Sounds an awful lot like, in him we live and move and have our being. You see, when God does a new thing, it's always personal. It's not just about the thing he's making or doing. It's about the people he's doing it for or with. And he does things, new things in particular, to prompt us to look for him in those new things and to share those new things with him. We believe God is doing new things here at Grace. I I smiled inside when the teaching team found their way to new beginnings as the theme for the year. Because that's exactly the way I want us to think about it. Not an ending, but a beginning. An opportunity for each one of us to seek him and reach out for him and perhaps find him in ways we've never found him before. And that leads to the third why question that Genesis speaks to. Why is there someday rather than just today? 
Now, this one may not be quite as obvious as the others, but it occurred to me as I worked through the text. It gets at the progressive aspect to the beginning of everything. Now, there's a sense of progress as the text walks us through the days of creation. With each day, the creation becomes a bit more complex, a bit more abundant, a bit more glorious. And then we get to what's sometimes called the great mandate, God's call to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The work of creation clearly isn't done yet. God didn't say to the man and woman, don't touch anything like a guard in a museum or a parent who just finished cleaning the house. God wants the man and woman to touch things, to work with them, to try things, and even improve things. He never expected the world to stay the same. Change and growth and newness was always part of the bargain. God expects there to be more in the future, more beauty, more diversity, more life. When God stepped back and looked at all he had made, he said it was good. He said it was very good, but he didn't say it was done. Remember that Hebrew word we talked about earlier, bara, that we translated create? Well, it turns out that word doesn't describe a, a one-and-done work, a project that you finish and walk away from. It describes an ongoing work that continues to unfold. Uh, think of it this way. On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs announced the creation of a new thing, the iPhone. A phone and a camera and a computer and a music player all in one. But Jobs didn't just create it and walk away, did he? He wasn't done creating. It was only the beginning of what the iPhone would eventually become and is still becoming. And that's the language, that's the narrative of Genesis 1. Creation isn't done, it's just begun. It's headed somewhere. The why of creation isn't just about revealing God's glory and sharing God's glory. It's about extending God's glory. From the very beginning, God had something grander and more beautiful in mind. We read about it in the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. From the beginning, even before the beginning, God had in mind a future in which men and women would not only be creatures who behold his glory, but sons and daughters who would share his glory and co-creators who would extend his glory. Ephesians goes on to tell us in verse 8, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We are still on our way to that new thing. 
to bring unity to all things, heaven and earth, under Christ. Genesis 1 is still happening. It's still unfolding. You see, when God does a new thing, it's always progressive. The beginning is just a beginning. There's always more to be seen, done, learned, experienced, accomplished. (laughs) And to, to get personal and very practical about it, that's what our connection pathways are all about here at Grace. We introduced them last week. Be curious, grow with practice, find community, make an impact. Some of us have been following Jesus a long time. Some of us have been at Grace Chapel a long time. But these pathways are invitations to us to keep on discovering, keep learning, keep connecting, keep serving. What new thing might God want to teach you this year? What new work or new relationship can you step into this year? I hope you're thinking and praying about that. Grace Chapel has been here a long time. 75 years, in fact, which we'll celebrate that later this fall. So many good and beautiful things have been accomplished and experienced in those 75 years. But there's more to be done and more to be experienced. So God has led us into this year of new beginnings in order that he might reveal and share and extend his glory to more people and more places than ever before. We have a lot to look forward to. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. And I know I've gone a bit over, but we're talking billions of years here. So anyway, uh, let me try to bring it all together. What we're learning about beginnings here in Genesis 1 is that when God does a new thing, it's always purposeful, even when it's unexpected or uncomfortable. When God does a new thing, it's always personal. God is prompting you to seek out and reach out and find Him. And when God does a new thing, it's always progressive. There's always more to come. That freshman year of college really was a new beginning for me. The newness of it forced me to find new ways to relate to God and to discover a faith that was my own, not just my parents or my youth leaders. That year, I discovered a love for studying and teaching the scriptures that has only increased over the years. I formed friendships that are still with me to this day. I got involved with a ministry that awakened in me a lifelong passion for reaching people who are far from God and church, and a ministry through which I would meet my lifelong love and partner, Karen. And get this, the theme verse for that freshman year, a verse that I taped to my bookshelf and looked at every day, would become one of the most formative verses in the Bible for me, and one that you have heard me repeat many times over the years. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
When God brings us to a new beginning, it's just a beginning. There's always more to come. And I believe that's true for everyone listening today and for Grace Chapel. So together, let's seek it and reach out for it and find it. Would you pray with me? We praise you, Lord, for this world, this universe that you have made, for the beauty and wonder and complexity and goodness of it. We pray that this week you might open our eyes to that beauty and goodness and wonder, that we might find you in it and praise you for it. We pray as well, Lord, that you might open our eyes to the new things you might want to do in our lives, our families, our our church, our groups, our ministries, our careers. Open our eyes to them and give us the courage and faith to seek you in them, to find you in them. Lord, I pray in particular for those today who might find it hard to be optimistic about the future, who are struggling with the new season they find themselves in, one they didn't ask for and is difficult. We pray that even there, they might recognize you to be a God who, who can make something out of nothing and do something beautiful, even with the difficult seasons of our lives. So we trust ourselves, our church, and our future to you. In Jesus' name, amen.